Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time. And Lord, as we jump into this message today, we want to pray and ask that the Spirit of God would lead us um, in powerful, incredible ways. Dear Jesus, Lord, the world is falling apart right now, and you're calling your church to a special experience during this time. We pray and ask the Holy Spirit would speak, and our hearts would be open to the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a reminder, if you want to send your kid out to Children's Church, I'm going to let you know right off the back, we're going to be using the word sex and sexuality multiple times. Okay? But what you're going to be hearing is a biblical message. Okay? So if you'd like to send your child out, and she can take them up to age 12, this is the time to do it. We're going to be talking about some things that are very important. Now, I'm not saying you have to send your children out. It's up to you to determine their maturity level and what they should and should not hear. Right. The name of the message today is called what? Be Mine. You know, I was actually looking over a a country music survey. Now, I don't listen to country music. It's not just something I do. I've never had any kind of taste for country music. Now, here's the thing. And when I was surveying this country music, um, sort of, uh, they were doing this survey over, you know, several years of country music. They were trying to tally the number one word used in country music. How many people think they know what the number one word used in country music is? Truck. It's not truck. Raise your hand. What's the number one word? Natalie. Love? It is not. Who knows what the number one word is? Yes, Stephen. Girl. Girl. Nope. What's the number one word? Yes. Sex. It is not. The number one word used in country music is baby. Do you want to know what number two is? Number two is gonna. Number three is woulda. Number four is night. Number five is oh. Number six is love. It's very interesting when you're taking a good look at music and just sort of a survey of music, you begin to notice there are various trends. There was actually a year when country music used love as their number one song or number one word that was used in their music. But that began to change. Words like night and sex and other words begin to take the place of different genres of music as well. You know, when we think of that word love today... That word love today is used in multiple ways. You can love this, you can love that. When it comes to the word love, we have a hard time actually honing in on a clear definition. Sometimes we'll say what love is, is simply that which makes you happy. You love that which makes you happy. And so love becomes a a sort of a free-for-all definition. A free-for-all experience. You can love whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. This is the definition of love today. In fact, if I was to do a survey here in this church, and I don't like surveys, amen? If I was to do a survey in this church, you would be quite surprised when you would see the variance when it comes to the word love and what it means. In Scripture... There is a three-word verse that should communicate to us so much about the word love. And it's found in 1 John. Who knows what that verse is? God 
is what? Love. I'm going to say it one more time. God is what? Love. Over again. Let's say it one more time. God is love. Ladies and gentlemen, our love does not define God's love. It is quite the opposite. God's love defines what love is. Amen? And so the Bible says something very interesting. It says, God is what? Love. Out of all the words that are used in Scripture to describe God, this phrase speaks so powerfully about the nature, the character of God, that God is what? Love. Now everybody take your Bible. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see something quite remarkable. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Let's go to verse 26. If we can turn up the air condition. It is getting hot. Someone say amen. <laughs> Alright, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Okay, now let's start with verse 26. I want you to see something very remarkable. Then what? God said what? Let us make man in our own what? Image in according to our what? Ladies and gentlemen, what did we say was the image of God or the nature and character of God? Love. Now pay attention to this. When man, when man was being created by God, God said, let us make man according to our what? Image. So mankind was created as a being of what? Love. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to pay attention to the origin of mankind. You were created as a being of love. Now take a good look at the person next to you. That person that you are looking at right next to you is actually a being whose origin is a creation of love. Are you tracking with me so far? Some of you are afraid to look at the person next to you. Just turn and say, that person was a person whose origin was a creation of what? Remember, the Bible says God is love and mankind was created in His image. So mankind was created in the image of what? Say it one more time. Love. love. This was the origin of mankind. Mankind was created for two purposes. Number one, to love and to what? Be love. To love and to what? Be love. I was explaining this to some Hindus who have a very impersonal concept of God. I said, if God created mankind as a very personal being, therefore... It must be understood that the one who created him as a personal being must be himself a personal being. And the Bible says God is what? Love. And mankind was created in his own image, so mankind was created in what? Love. Every human being comes from Adam. And Adam was created in love. Your origin, your heritage, ladies and gentlemen, is a creation of love. Let's fast forward all the way to the very end of time. Take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Matthew. Take a good look at what the Bible says right here. Matthew 24. And many false prophets shall arise. This is talking about end time events. And deceive many. Now pay attention to this. And because what? Lawlessness shall abound. The love of many shall what? Wax cold. Notice what Jesus is saying right here. The very beginning, ladies and gentlemen, mankind was created as a being of love. But at the very end of time, right before the second coming of Jesus, what is he saying about love? It's almost gone. It's almost defaced. He is describing the condition of the world right before he comes back. 
In fact, the word wax cold is a word that actually means hard respiration, like a, a breathing out of cold. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 2, when God created mankind, He what? He breathed into him. And it's very interesting. At the very end of time, right before Jesus comes back, he says, look, the love of many has waxed what? Cold. In other words, when God is looking upon the very end of time, he can hardly see his own image in them. You know what's very interesting today? There should be a, an awareness of this. If you're not aware of it now, all you need to do is just look on the newspaper. And when you look in the newspaper, you begin to see uh, some unusual things that are happening in our world today when it comes to media. You think about uh, what's popular in mainstream society right now. And currently, there is a movie that is considered quite controversial. Yet is what, what is quite funny is this movie is not just attracting non-believers, it's apparently attracting Christians as well. It's a movie called Fifty Shades of Grey, and I know nobody here has saw that movie. Amen? If you're a Christian, you should not be seeing that movie. I'm going to put it very plain. This is a movie, movie that glorifies, glamorizes rape, sodomy, abusive relationships. In fact, it has been titled by different psychology psychologists as a movie that promotes abuse in relationships. Yet at the same time, there are some people who are saying, this is not something you should be seeing. Apparently, in the underbelly of culture, there is a whole group of people that are so excited about this movie, and they call anybody who calls or attacks this movie in any way as being judgmental. This is not something that should surprise us. Jesus warned about something and he says, look, when I come back, when the gospel is trying to go through the same world, at the same time this gospel message of love is going through the entire world, the love of many people is growing cold. What God is saying, what Jesus is saying is that when he returns, there's going to be so much aberrant variations of what love is, it will be hard to recognize the image of God in anything. And what you are looking at right there is you are looking at, at the beginning of a whole new era of media that is going to be blitzing society as we know it. You know, it's... When we are... I really believe in as I was contemplating this, I was talking to a couple of my friends who are counselors, trained counselors. I was even talking to my ministerial director, and he is a trained counselor. Um, he got his PhD, I think, down somewhere in Southern California. I think it was Loma Linda. And I was talking to him about this very issue, about this very sermon. And he was just sharing with me some of the effects that are coming upon this world. Things that most people, even Christians, are not seeing. But it's solely starting to develop in our world today. And that has to do with our concept, our definition of what love really is. What love really is. And this is where we start becoming a little bit more direct. I um, grew up in a very unusual family. My family is very Asian. I come from a, a, a Far East culture, the Indian culture. Um, India is in Asia for some people who don't know that. But uh, 
Some people are like, he's Asian? He doesn't look Asian. Yes, India's in Asia. It's not in Antarctica, it's in Asia. And in the Asian culture, this is not something that we discuss. I didn't grow up discussing this kind of stuff. In fact, when my, when my best friend talked to me, he told me something. He said these words, and I'm going to be very direct. Did you know your parents are still doing it? And when he told me that, I said, what are you talking about? And he began to explain to me that my parents were still having physical relationships, a relationship. And I said, no, that's not true. And then it began to dawn on me that my mom, my dad, they would lock their room and they would disappear sometimes. And all of a sudden, these thoughts started flooding the mind. Oh my goodness. And my mind had a hard time contemplating the idea even of this. And I thought, that is a violation of nature. That does not happen. (laughs) I never saw my mom and dad kiss once. Ever. Not once in my entire life. We're living in a culture which is very interesting. And it started really strongly with the Victorian culture where there was this repression of talking about sexuality in a very healthy way. And what it produced in later generations, it began to produce an unusual curiosity, an unusual fascination, and an unusual experimentation by generations that began to come afterwards. You have a generation... They had so suppressed talking about any idea of sexuality, even healthy biblical sexuality, and it began to lead to this almost unusual fascination with it. And things begin to emerge in our culture today, and we're scratching our head, we're like, where did this come from? And it came from almost this over, over extreme reaction almost fueled by legalism that we cannot talk about this issue whatsoever. And what happened is, it then began to lead to the other swing, the pendulum swung the other way, and then you began to have some unusual pictures of what sexuality really was. We're going to be looking in the scripture, and we're going to be dealing with this issue today. I want you to pay attention to the first point, and that is this. Sexuality is given by the who? By the who? Creator. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to pay attention to this. Sexuality has an independent value outside reproduction. Can you say amen to that? Like it has a value outside just mere reproduction. Now if we believed in the naturalistic evolutionary theory, we could just say its purpose is reproduction. But the Bible actually teaches something about sexuality. That this was something that was created by who? It was created by the Creator. God created in the Garden of Eden. Now what is very interesting is, when mankind fell, God didn't say, Adam and Eve, I am not going to let you guys have this gift anymore. The only way you're going to reproduce is through pollination. In fact, there may be no more need for reproduction. I'm just going to make Adam or Eve just be able to give birth to children without any kind of male or spousal action. God could have said that. But no, you know what God did? He allowed this beautiful act to carry through into the fallen world. 
And what we begin to notice about this beautiful action is that the Bible does not repress holy sexuality. In fact, it celebrates it. You're thinking, what? It celebrates it? It actually celebrates sexuality. Now, we're going to be looking at this in the scriptures. But we need to think about this. If all I do is just attack negative, unhealthy sexuality, I'm going to have to keep putting out fires there, keep putting out fires there, keep putting out fires there. In other words, error always outnumbers the truth. Instead, if I want to teach people and lead people to a better understanding, I need to affirm what God has written in His Word. Can you say amen to that? All right, let's take our Bible. Let's go to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon. You know what's so interesting about the Song of Solomon? I used to, when I picked up the Bible, I was reading the Bible straight through when I first started reading the scriptures. And as I got through the Song of Solomon, I thought to myself, what is this talking about? I even looked at various commentators. And the commentators were extrapolating things and saying things. I don't even know how they got these things from reading the Song of Solomon. But as we begin to read the Song of Solomon, the first thing you're going to be telling me about when it comes to the Song of Solomon, you're going to say something like this. The Song of Solomon. Oh, that's a book that describes Christ and the church. And we keep it relegated to that category. But what is very interesting is that outside of that, it still has a value in teaching about sexuality. Take your Bible. Let's go to the Song of Solomon, verse 1. Song of Solomon, verse 1. And this by no means is going to be exhaustive. But we're going to start being very general. We're going to start going very, very specific. Song of Solomon, starting with verse 1. If you're there, go say amen. Amen. Notice what the Bible says. The Song of Songs, which Solomon's. Which is Solomon's. How many songs did Solomon write? Does anybody know? He wrote a thousand and five. You can read about it in 1 Kings. But what does he say about the Song of Solomon? What's he say about the Song of Solomon? Yes, when you say the word, the word king of kings, you're meaning that this is the top one. And so what Solomon is saying about the Song of Solomon, he's saying, look, this is the best song that I could have written. And what he begins to describe in various portions in the Song of Solomon, he begins to describe a woman, a Shulamite, who was very interested in this man. And she, and the Bible begins to describe her intense longings and feelings for this man. The Bible describes in various kinds of metaphors his her courtship of him or his courtship of her. And then it describes their sexual union. And then it describes what happens afterwards. I want you to pay attention to the key passage in the Song of Solomon. In other words, this is the apex of the Song of Solomon. There are 111 verses on one side and 111 verses on the other side. And what you are looking at at the end of chapter 4 and the very first verse of chapter 5 is the apex of the Song of Solomon. And what it is, it is the sexual experiences that take place between this man and this woman in the context of marriage. Go there right now. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Last verse, and the first verse of chapter 5. Here's what the Bible says right here. Awake, O north, what? Wind, and come, O south, blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. And it's describing in very strong metaphorical language the sexual union that takes place between a man and woman who is married. Now the reason I bring up this Song of Solomon is because what you find in the Song of Solomon is, as I said before, celebrated sexuality. In other words, there was, when you're reading the Song of Solomon, there is a passage that appears throughout the Song of Solomon at three different times. And it says these words. My friends, do not awaken love until it is what? Ready. And the Shulamite says it multiple times throughout the Song of Solomon. And what she is saying, it's very interesting. She is alerting the other females, her companions, that there is an appropriateness for sexuality. Can you say amen to that? Ladies and gentlemen, fire. Is fire good? Fire right here, is it good? No, fire where? In a fire pit, right? Or a fireplace on a rainy day, right? Get a little romantic, you know what I mean? It's Valentine's Day. In other words, fire is good only in what? It's right context. Marriage or sexual relations are only blessed by God in its right context. And so what you are finding in the book of Song of Solomon is this celebration of sexuality. They're very open about what's happening. But throughout the Song of Solomon, she is saying over and over again, do not go there yet until it's the right time. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to be very frank with you. And I say this with all the love in my heart. Premarital sex is still sin one hour before the marriage. Amen? Now the reason why it's sin is another question. Not because God has set some restrictive rules up and He doesn't want you to enjoy pleasure. Does God love pleasure, ladies and gentlemen? In fact, what does the Garden of Eden mean? The word Eden means pleasure. Sex was created for Adam and Eve. And this is very important. God wants to give pleasure, but only in its appropriate context. Only in its appropriate context. The reason why throughout the scripture God deals with the concept of uh, marital sex as being important and why that's important to the Lord is because outside the marriage relationship, I want to say this one more time, outside the marriage relationship, premarital sex is detrimental and destructive to relationships altogether. Now you may say, well, there's no big, no big deal. But here's the thing, there is a big deal. Number one, because you're modeling it to the children around you. You're modeling it to the children around you. You're saying that it's okay to sleep around with whoever you want before the marriage. And that is not right. Amen? Number two is that when it comes to sexuality, sexuality is one of the most vulnerable, in fact, if it's not the most vulnerable thing a human being can participate in. And the devil knows, the devil knows that when God blesses something, when he increases his favor or his blessing upon a particular act, that it also has the potential to be even more devastating. Now there's nothing in this world that makes people feel more ashamed than being sexually abused by somebody else. You talk to anybody 
who's ever been abused by somebody and they're living with this guilt. Why? Because they believe that they have been violated. But ladies and gentlemen, if that's been your case, I want you to know the blood of Jesus covers you. And the blood of Jesus heals. The Bible even says in Jeremiah 31 verse 3, I've loved you with an everlasting love and I will rebuild you, O virgin Israel. This was the same Israel that was backsliding, committing spiritual adultery. But what is he calling her? Still a virgin. Why? Because the blood of Jesus was over her. But this is very important for us to understand. You're modeling it for your children. Number two, it is affecting relationships more than you truly understand. Because you're laying a precedent down. And that is this, that it's okay for us to engage in things that God has said for us not to do. You know, one day I was talking to this marital couple, this couple, they weren't married, they were living together for several years, they had kids. And I was counseling them. And I was counseling them several times. And they said, we're just trying to get along. We're just trying to get along. And they never get along with me. They're always demanding this. And I'm always demanding this. And I met with them three or four times. And finally, I just said it. And I really believe it was the Holy Spirit. I said, let me get this right. You want marital blessings. They're like, yes. Then I'm like, you'll get them when you're married. Amen? You want marital blessings, you'll get them when when? When you're married. And you know what a marital blessing is? It is the blessing upon sexual union. Outside the marriage covenant, there is no blessing from the Lord. It needs to come within the, sec- the, the marital covenant between God. And the Lord will put special blessings upon that. And if you find yourself engaged in a relationship that has become very physical, then you need to draw a line in the sand. And you need to tell that person, if you eat of the apple pie now, there'll be no more crust, there'll be only crust left for dinner. God wants us to recognize this. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, the marriage bed is what? Undefiled. Sex should be relegated only to the marriage bed. Can you say amen to that? Only to the marriage bed. In fact, the Bible warns that one of the problems are those who outside the kingdom will be two things. Number one, fornicators and adulterers. Well, what's a fornicator and what's an adulterer? A fornicator is someone who is having relationships, physical relationships, talking about sex, before marriage. And what is an adulterer? Someone who is having a physical relationship with somebody else during marriage. And the Bible is warning it, not because these two are just, they're wicked people, but because the elements that they're inculcating into their experience are destructive to their relationships and the relationships around them. In fact, I was doing this survey, I was looking at this survey, and they interviewed 40,000 Americans, and you know what they found? They found that people who engage in premarital, most premarital sex before marriage have a higher rate of divorce, but also a higher rate of affairs. And not only a higher rate of affairs, that people who engage in premarital sex, what they found is that they had a higher rate of what they called interruptions in the marriage. marriage, Marital breakage taking place for whatever the reason. There is a strong correlation with premarital sex and destructions in marriage. It doesn't mean that everything's going to work smooth and perfect. There's going to be hard work if you do things right. Amen? It's still hard work. But it's very important that we, as a body of believers in a world that's becoming more and more perverse, that we say, no, 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 no. This is something that is sacred and it's holy and it's something for God's glory. Can you say amen to that? Ladies and gentlemen, no one here is cheap. 
If you've been bought by the blood of the Lamb, you are not cheap in any bit. Amen? So don't treat your body like that. Let's keep going. Number three, biblical sexuality should be taught. Take your Bible, let's go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Now we're going to start becoming a little bit more pointed here. Genesis chapter 2. First book of the Bible, second chapter of the Bible. All right? Let's start with Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep what? Sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. He brought her to man. And notice this. And Adam said, this is now what? Bone of my bones, and what? Flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called what? Woman, because she was taken out of man. Notice the next part. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined together to his girlfriend. Is that what it says? No, to his what? To his wife. Let's keep going. And they shall become what? One flesh. And they were both naked and the man and the wife and were not what? Genesis chapter 2. The very last thing that perfection ends with is the sexual union. Because you know what happens in the very next chapter? The fall of man. So notice this. Everything culminates in Genesis up to this climax right here. When man and woman are engaged in what would be the most holiest, sacred relationship on earth. And that was a sexual relationship within the context of marriage. But I want you to pay attention to this verse. It says, and they were not, what? Ashamed. Let me ask you a question. What is the opposite of being ashamed? What is the opposite of being ashamed? Don't say unashamed. What is the opposite of being ashamed? When someone is ashamed of something, like, I'm ashamed of this. What would be the opposite of that? I can't hear anything, you guys. Raise your hand. Tom, what's the opposite of being ashamed? Righteousness. Okay, anybody else? Yes. Proud. Okay, very good. Anybody else? Steve. Okay, agree, agree. Anybody else? Steve, agree with Steve. Okay, yes. A clear conscience. Okay, anybody else? Comfortable. Comfortable. Okay, I like that. But here's the thing I want to ask you. Was this what you were already experiencing before marriage? Oh, so they weren't comfortable? They weren't confident? They didn't have the peace of God upon them? Was that something they were experiencing before marriage? My question is, what were they experiencing within marriage? What does that phrase, not ashamed, mean? How is that different than their single life? <laughs> You're being so general. Be more specific. Be specific. What were they experiencing? I hope you guys understand my question. What were they experiencing within the confines of marriage that they were not experiencing in their single life? And it's the opposite of not being ashamed. Steve? Oneness. I like that. Anybody else? Intimacy. Okay. Any, oh, that's a good one, actually. Anybody else? Togetherness. Okay. Anybody else? What is it? Unity. Think of the phrase, ashamed. <laughs> no, they weren't guilty. What were they experiencing now? Okay, blessed, but what does that mean? If you're ashamed of something, you're what of it? 
You're embarrassed of it, right? There's almost this humiliation you feel, right? So the opposite of that would be what? Use... (laughs) Anybody else? It hurts and I'm thinking, try a little harder, try a little harder. You ready for this? What Adam and Eve were experiencing that was different than their single life, that they were experiencing together, that was opposite of being ashamed... Ready for this? Was a dignified openness and confidence in their intimacy. You're like, you said so many words, I don't know what it means. It just sounds right. (laughs) If you're ashamed of something, you're embarrassed of something, right? But if you're not ashamed of it, you're not what? What were they not ashamed of now? Their most vulnerable experience. They were no longer ashamed. And you're saying, where is this leading to, Pastor? Now, here's the point I'm trying to make. Ladies and gentlemen, in the Garden of Eden, what Adam and Eve experienced was a dignified, holy, confident openness that was sanctified when it came to their intimacy. You're thinking, what do you mean by that? It means, ladies and gentlemen, that this was meant to be an experience that was happy and holy and made to share with other people. You're like, wait, wait, just stop right there, Pastor Arnell. And what do I mean by that? Ladies and gentlemen, as I said before, we have dealt with a culture that has repressed sexuality to the place where you're not supposed to talk about it unless you're out in the world. But what is very interesting is that the scriptures teach a celebration of it, that it was used as a witnessing tool. You know, I have some friends, David Ashrick and Violetta. And this guy preaches all over. He's all over 3BN. And hopefully he's not listening to the sermon. And anytime when it comes to his, you know, sexual life, he'll say, ask me any questions you want. He's obviously talking to me in private. And what he is saying, he said, it's extremely important that we give people a healthy concept of what sexuality looks like within the confines of marriage. You know, and let me flesh this out a little bit more on what I mean by that. Children. Do you know what statistics are revealing about children today? That children are starting to look at pornography by the age of 10. That 90% of kids between the ages of 8 and 17 have looked at pornography already. They've looked at pornography. Did you know one in four girls have been sexually abused by somebody. I was talking to Cesar DeLeon, the ministerial director, and what he was sharing with me is that, that if, if you have not talked to your children and shown them the beauty in some way, in some kind of education fa- facet, what healthy sexuality looks like, they're going to be educated by their friends or by media by age 10. They would have already gotten their first exposure to something else. The point I'm trying to make in talking about this, ladies and gentlemen, is that this should be something that should be taught. Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 2, the story ends of the perfection of them having this glorious union. And that was meant to be something that was to be a guideline for all of humanity. In other words, when it comes to teaching about sexuality, it should be taught within the context of Adam and Eve. And I was talking to my friend who's his counselor, and I, I said, okay, how do you have this talk with your children? 
And they said this. You shouldn't just have the birds and the bees talk. You shouldn't just say, well, I'm going to wait till it's necessary. Don't wait till it's necessary, ladies and gentlemen. Do it before. Amen? Be intentional about talking to them about this. And what he was saying, when it comes to sexual education, he says these, he told me these words. He said, before teaching them desire, teach them the function of their organs. I want to say that one more time. Before you teach them desire, teach them the function of their organs. In other words, they need to have understanding because of, of what they have in their body or what they have on their body. And that's extremely important because what happens is, if you teach them desire first, they may begin to start experimenting with things that may be outside who they are. You know, did you know in Europe right now, there are parts of Europe that when children are being born, they're not labeling them a he or a she anymore. They're labeling them as a neutral. Did you know that? They're labeling them as neutral. And they're allowing the child to develop their own sexual identity. Ladies and gentlemen, that in the midst of a culture that is falling apart, where people don't even understand what love looks like anymore, we need to go back to the biblical model. And in the biblical model, you found Adam and Eve... Ending perfection, or the last picture of perfection, is this holy confidence about their relationship. It doesn't mean you go out and you share details about your sex life. Amen? But it does mean it should be something that you should be willing to talk to your children about in time. Don't wait just to have a bird and the bees talk when all of a sudden they've encountered some pornographic image. Rather, be intentional and start educating them. Talk to them about Adam Eve. Talk to them about the various functions of their body. And from there you begin to lead them to the next step, which is a description of healthy desires. Of healthy desires. I was talking to one of my friends who's a counselor and I asked her, how come we are seeing this sort of outbreak of homosexuality? What's going on right now? And she shared with me one of the causes of this. She says, number one, we're dealing with a generation, an Adventist generation that's afraid to confront it. And so it's growing. Number two, that children who are being, who come in, who have families, may not have a strong father figure. And there are common denominators as they're looking at. But the third thing is very interesting. And that is this. That children, when they begin to display signs of being introverted, it's very important to talk to your children and get them to open up naturally. Instead of leaving those feelings completely confined. And as they begin to look upon the world, they begin to interpret those feelings and form their own identity from what they're seeing out in the world. Teach your children how to open up before the Lord, how to open up to you as parents. Can you say amen to that? And you will see what the, just the, the beauty of godly development take place. And these things are extremely important. God wants us to understand these things. Again, this is by no means exhaustive, okay? Let's go to number four. Biblical sexuality is ministering to your what? Spouse. Take your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Please say amen if you're there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Take a good look at what the scriptures are saying. Okay? Go to verse 2. Nevertheless, because of sexual what? Now, did Paul deal with these issues in the church, ladies and gentlemen? Of course he did. Sexual immorality, let each man have his own what? 
And let each woman have her own what? Let the husband, now pay attention to these keywords. Husband, render to his wife the affection what? Do her and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4 is key. The wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Let's stop and close our Bibles right there. Can you say amen to that? Is that what it says? Is that what it says right there? Is that the context of the truth right there? What should we do? Let's read the next verse. And likewise, the husband does not what? Have authority over his body, but the what? Ladies and gentlemen, how many couples do we have here? Raise your hand. You're a married couple. Raise your hand. Okay? I want you to understand something. The scriptures teach something very interesting, and that is this. That the purpose of sexuality was to minister to your spouse. In other words, it was meant to be an act of love. But there is mutuality in this act of love. Can you say amen to that? In other words, sexuality was not selfishness. At its core root, it is what? Unselfishness. It is about ministering to somebody in a certain way that you can minister to nobody else. And in that, there was to be this cycle. The husband ministers to the wife and the wife ministers to the husband. And there was to be unselfishness as part of that equation. It wasn't just to be, I want what I want when I want it. And that's the end of it, and my wife is going to give it to me. That's not the way biblical sexuality was. In fact, it was meant to be service to one another. You know, my friend, she was sharing this analogy with me. She did this marriage seminar, and she shared this analogy that was very interesting. She said, imagine a husband and imagine a wife. They live in the same house. And they come to this one room. And this one room, they both get to decorate it together. Nobody else is allowed in that room. That's their room. But it's not for the husband alone to decorate that room. And it's not for the wife alone to decorate that room. The only way this room can be decorated is that it's supposed to be decorated by both of them. But you know what we've done in our culture? We've taken that room, we put it on the front porch, invited the dog and the cat and the neighbor. No, that room is reserved for a husband and wife. Can you say amen to that? And that is something that is supposed to be including both the husband and wife. Ladies and gentlemen, if there are abusive relationships taking place, I want to encourage you to talk to somebody. You need to talk to somebody. And you need to get help. This isn't no 1960s, just stay with your husband or stay with your wife as they're abusing you. No, no, no. That is not biblical sexuality. Abuse should take place by no means... When it comes to the marital relationship. Can you say amen to that? It was meant to be a blessing to both parties. Not for oneself. It was meant to be a ministering agent to the other person. But what's happened in our culture today. Same with that movie. You find where you find this dominance. This selfishness that's existing. You know what Ellen White even says about love? She's talking about the devil. And she says that unselfishness is the principle of the kingdom. And she says these words. Satan denies its very existence. Those are her words. What is he denying? He's denying the existence of love. He says there is no such thing. 
There is no such thing as love. Real unselfish love, it doesn't exist. In fact, these were his reasons in the great controversy early on. In fact, when you read the book of Job, he's trying to get uh, the other people believing that the only reason why Job follows you is because he's selfish. And the great controversy is over this. Selfishness versus unselfishness. And it's very important that we as the people of God, in our relationships, that we say we want to radically claim love again. Not human love, but God's love. Amen? Biblical love. That we as a people start reclaiming this. As I said before, there's so many ways we can broach this topic, but just for today, we need to just think about this. Number one. God wants us to understand that sexuality was given by Him. Can you say amen to that? Number two, that sexuality, biblical sexuality, was celebrated within the context of marriage. And number three, it's not something that we should be ashamed of, but that we should teach it in its biblical precedent, in its biblical context. Amen? And the fourth thing, which is very important, and that is this. That sexuality was given to minister. It was a ministering agent, a way to bless somebody in a certain way that you can get by no other person. We are living at strange times right now. The time where people are pulling away from the scriptures, they're pulling away from this idea of what love is. And there's so many views out there and the devil's trying to muddy the water like never before. But you, whose heritage is a being of love, God is calling you to reclaim that biblical picture again. To reclaim that holy love again. To live a life that brings glory and honor to God and leads other people to the cross of Calvary where we see unselfish love manifested. If there ever is a time, it is now for God's people to rise up. How many people say, I want to live a life that is, uh, I want to live a radical life that shares God's love with this entire world. Raise that hand if that's you. You said, I want that beautiful picture of love. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, We just thank you so much for the Bible and the Word of God. And Lord, we're barely scratching the surface here. We need more than earthly love. We need heaven's love. God, we need you to put heaven's love in our own heart. Our conceptions are so faulty and flawed. Father in heaven, we want to pray that you would make us agents of love. That we would reclaim the heritage that we have in creation. That we were created to love and to be loved. Father, I think of that verse in, in, in Matthew that says, or John that says, By all, this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. God, put love in our hearts again. Teach us. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.